In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus says some things that deeply trouble the disciples, which he often did. Uh, he tells them that the temple, the sacred place for them, was going, was going to be destroyed. The disciples first bring it up, the whole temple issue, in a conversation. In verse 5 of our text, it says that the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned and with these beautiful stones and the gifts dedicated to God. So they're celebrating this, this place that carried the Jewish story. But Jesus says, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on the other. Every one of them will be thrown down. This would have been totally shocking to them. It's really important to remember when we read these kinds of texts what people thought about with the circumstances surrounding them. The temple to them was the very center of the Jewish life in Jesus' day. It stood for the presence of God. How could the presence of God be torn down? It stood for God's forgiveness. How could that be torn down? The temple was at the heart of the story of God's engagement with the Jewish people. And Jesus is telling them, it's all coming down. This was a definite Debbie Downer for them. They immediately reply, teacher, they ask, when? What do you mean? When is this going to happen? What will be the sign that is going to take place? And then Jesus launches into this whole uh, kind of description of some very bad and disturbing things that would take place. He says they're going to be deceived, potentially. He says the time is coming, they'll hear of wars and uprisings. And then he tells them, but don't be frightened, which is hard to imagine that they wouldn't be. And then he says these things must happen. They have to happen. And then he said to them in verse 10, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in all kinds of various places, fearful events, great signs from heaven. But he says, before all this, they're going to seize you. It just gets better. <laughs> they're going to seize you and persecute you, and they're going to hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison. And so you'll bear testimony about me. And then he said in verse 16, you'll be betrayed by people who should support you, by people you've learned to trust. Your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your friends. Your friends will betray you. And they will put some of you to death. And then to top it off, everyone will hate you because of me. And then he says, apparently trying to soothe them, but not a hair on your head will perish. That's a hard sell when you just told me I'm going to be killed. <laughs> that everyone's going to forsake me and I'm going to go through pestilence and war and disaster. But not a hair on your head would perish. And then he says, stand firm and you will win life. Cryptic. How does that work? I mean, how can Jesus claim that not a head on our hair on our heads will perish when they're going to be put to death when everyone ends up hating you? And how do you win life through all this? 
This is classic Jesus, right? He's honest about the worst, and yet he grounds us in hope that stands in spite of the worst. In spite of the hidden reefs of disappointment that life often affords, I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about living through disappointment a little and landing in a space where you win on some level. Again, Jesus, not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Again, you've just heard Jesus talking about all these bad things that are going to happen, the loss of the temple, war, imprisonment, persecution, being hated by others. It just seems silly when Jesus says, not one hair on your head will perish, but Jesus is referencing something he said in another place or would say to them, that the hair on our head is actually connected by Jesus to the care of God for us as Father. We catch this in another kind of area of Jesus that's recorded of Jesus discussing with his disciples in Matthew 10. And it says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth many, much more than many sparrows. In this context, Jesus is saying that God has our backs. Even when we're facing things where we're obviously losing that God has our backs. Here's what I want us to see. One of the things you don't want to do when life gets bumpy or hard is to think that God is not with you. That, that somehow the, the circumstances are evidence of God's abandonment because then you don't understand God. God is with us even in the midst of trouble. Right? That's the way he is. He's with us even when stuff isn't going right. And when the, the psalmist says, the very present help in the time of trouble. We tend to think if we're in trouble, he must not be very present. But he is. This is his way. This is God's way. There's a very scary warning in the book of Hebrews to the church where the Hebrew writer says that we're not to do some of the things that the peoples, the Jewish people did in their story, in their faith story. That some of what happened there speaks to us, can teach us. And so the Hebrew writer says to us, so the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit says, and he relies or goes back to a former story from the Jewish world. He says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. He's talking back in the wilderness. He says, during the time of testing in the wilderness, they rebelled there. What happened? Well, your ancestors tested and tried me. We'll see just in a moment that testing God is actually daring to suggest that he's not with you when you're in trouble. When they were in the wilderness and they got in trouble, they would think, "God is God really with us? And it was that that God's reacting to here. How dare you say, just because you're in trouble, that I'm not with you. Do you not understand who I am? God is saying. 
He says, through 40 years, they saw what I did. That was why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. So the Hebrew writers juxtaposing that, saying, listen, the rest is still present. There's still an availability for rest, but you can't doubt that God is with you. You have to know how he does and how he works. Here's the background of that statement. Exodus 17, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. There's a lot of people. There's no water. This is double trouble. So they quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why are you quarreling with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? See, testing God has to do with not having what you need and thinking God is unfaithful. And it says in verse 7, they called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Are you ever tempted to think that? Is the Lord with me or not? Is this even real? Because I'm facing this thing I can't, people can't go without water. You can't go without friendship. You can't go without, in the midst of all kinds of loss. It's untenable. Places where we get where we think, I need something else where is God? Is he not with me? And the challenge is that we are called to not test God, which is an indicator of a hard heart. And according to the Hebrews text, it's simply when we face hard times and we ask, is God with me? Does God have my back? Or not. We're not talking about lamenting here. The Psalms are full of lamenting where it says, God, you have forsaken me. That's just throwing up emotionally. There's a difference between having that emotional response, knowing in the back of your mind, God is faithful. And you'll see that in the Psalms. When that kind of throw up happens, they come back to, yes, but you have been faithful by remembering their past. But this is different. That lament's different than questioning God's character. Lament is different than by thinking this is not trustworthy. I can't lean into this. And because of that, the Hebrew text says, I was angry. They have not known my ways. Why? What's God's way? God's way is that he is always for us. God's way is that even when it appears like he is hidden, he's with us. That's God's way. Our recognition of this is the essence of faith. This is why Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, you cannot please God. It's impossible. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards people who seek his existence as the essence of faith. Now, if you have no faith and you're flailing, it isn't that God doesn't forgive that. He certainly does. But you've got to process that and come to him. God's ways include seeking God when God is hidden. 
and recognizing that God leads us even in the midst of hard, miserable places. God is still with us. Here's the Psalm saying it, Psalm 84. Blessed is the person whose strength is in you, God, in whose hearts are your ways. And this person gets God's ways and watch it. Who going through the valley of misery one translation calls it the valley of, valley of Baca. It's this valley of misery uses it for a well. <laughs> Stink. <laughs> think about that. Here comes misery and you think, I'm going to dig into this because there's water in this well. In the midst of this dry, horrible, miserable place, I'm digging. Why? Because God is with me. He's got my back. Not one hair on my head will perish. God is here and I'm going to drink. That's the kind of, I don't know, something good. We believe that God consistently leads us through the valley of misery and wants us to use it for a well, to look beyond the loss. This is God's way. This is the way God is. There's a beautiful example of that. This, there's a number of letters that have been uh, discovered through archaeology, and a number of them have been written during the time when there was great, of the centuries of the church, where there's lots of, of uh, martyrdom. And one such letter uh, they found, I love it, it's, listen to it, it says, quote, in a dark hole I have found cheerfulness, in a place of bitterness and death I have found rest. While others weep I have found laughter, where others fear I have found strength. Who would have believed that in a state of misery I have had great pleasure, that in a lonely corner I have had glorious company, and in the hardest of bonds, perfect repose. All those things Jesus has granted me. He is with me, comforts me, and fills me with joy. He drives bitterness from me and fills me with strength and consolation. End quote. This is finding a well in the midst of misery, the valley of misery. Our gospel reading is clear. Life has heart in it. But Jesus claims that God is with us in heart. Jesus insists that life will have a harsh in it, but God is with us in the harsh. And Jesus asserts that if we dare to stand firm knowing that God is with us, and that God will help us, we will win on some level. We will win. I want to focus on just two quick hard things. There are so many hard things, but these are hard things that bring disappointment and that we need to stand through, and they're just simply, number one is the hard of the ordinary. Most of us think that making a difference in the world means we would have to be an amazingly, hugely gifted person. The problem is most of us are not that. And we're pretty ordinary. From the American point of view, being ordinary means we're just another one of them, which signifies that we are nothing in particular, thus proving we have little value. Most of us are pretty disappointed in us. Being ordinary feels pretty disappointing in a hero culture like we have in our culture where only the stick-out people matter. The stick-out gifted, the stick-out beautiful, the stick-out rich. But what if being ordinary is central to God's plan for us? 
Jesus Christ never suggested that sticking out in some way is what affords a person the ability to make his or her mark in the world. In fact, he constantly made statements like, the greatest among you will be your servant, or the last will be first, and the first will be last. These statements completely redefine the pathway to significance. If the pathway to significance is sticking out in some amazing way, servants and people sitting in last place are not the stick-out people type, right? What if God loves to flash the eternal through an ordinary life? What if God longs to release his kingdom through people and through circumstances that appear ordinary, small, even insignificant? What if the beachhead for God's spilling his life into the world is the dreaded ordinary? As one fellow said, the thing about life is that it's so ordinary, right? When you study the Bible and the lives of saints throughout history, it seems ordinary is the chosen habitation of the eternal. Consider Jesus. He was born <laughs> not in a castle. He was born in a manger, you can't get more nobody than that, born with animals. He grew up in a small village that had a bad reputation. Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? And was raised in the home of a carpenter. So basically, Jesus was a blue-collar worker. He did this to be with us, to be one of us, to fit into our world with us. And to bring the eternal into the world of the through the ordinariness of life. Dallas Willard wrote, quote, The obviously well-kept secret of the ordinary is that it's made to be a receptacle of the divine. A place where the life of God flows. End quote. According to this view, being small, basic, ordinary, merely human, with human limitations, blind spots, all that stuff is absolutely the best thing that ever could have happened to you. That's because our unspectacular traits are the perfect springboards of the divine. It turns out that, the, that, the, that small is the new big. <laughs> Back in the 90s, I was training in a very cool little sports car, Acura sports car that I loved. Um, but it was time trade in, and, and uh, it had one of those seats where you sit down and your feet are kind of parallel with, with the uh, ground, because you just kind of, just like that. Anyway, so there, you, you could hardly get under the front seat, and I was cleaning the car out and getting anything set, and I was getting all my old stuff out of there, and when I was cleaning underneath, I looked and I saw this, this was back in the music tape days, you know, we had cassettes, and I saw this cassette, and I thought, oh, I want that. So I start reaching under the car to try to get it, and my fat arm was, you know, as I was trying to go underneath, it was so low to the ground, right, to the floor of the car. And I'm reaching in, reaching in. I mean, just starting to scratch. It was like I was committing suicide or something, trying to commit suicide. And I was reaching out of there, and Lissa was little. My daughter Lissa was real little. She goes, Daddy. I said, hold on a second. I'm trying to get it. She goes, Daddy. I said, hold on a second. She said, Daddy. And I pulled my arm out. She went in front of me and went, here. <laughs> she had a tiny little arm, you know, the eight-year-old arm. And I kid you not, I heard in my heart, I think it was the Lord, little fits where big doesn't. Little fits where big doesn't. See, what if God intentionally made you less 
so that you could do more, so that you could fit in places. It's pretty amazing when you think about it that God Almighty, who's only perfect, could create people who are less than that. It had to be a lot of work. Right? I mean, how did how the one who knows, I mean, is perfect in every way, how could he create somebody who doesn't get math? <laughs> how could the God who's perfect in everything create a person who can't sing a note? It's a miracle. <laughs> right? It's like standing on an ocean, you know, right by the ocean and this huge, you know, 50-foot wave coming in. Coming in, you just kind of go like this and it passes by you and not a single drop hits you. You'd go, it's a miracle. What, how does God create you so little, you little thing, you? What if it takes more energy for God to create small than big? What if he intentionally created you so they could fit in places? The second hard that is so disappointing in life is when hard things just don't change. An illness that doesn't seem to relieve. A friendship that continues to die. A challenge that you just can't seem to hit the summit. All of us experience this even as we age. One of the things about getting older is it's not as fun. But it beats dying young. What do you do when you face hard, relentless hard? There are a lot of things that have happened in my life that I didn't like. And sometimes when I prayed about them, they, they changed. <laughs> Those are cool moments. But there's lots of times they didn't change. That was true even when I was standing on the promises of Scripture and praying my guts out. Sometimes people would tell me, yeah, you just need more faith. And I think that was true sometimes. I just needed more faith. But not every time. There were times I had my heart in the right place and I was all in with my faith. But things did not change. At least, obviously. What, what do you do with that? What do you do when you are a repeat of the Job story? Remember Job? In the land of Uz, there lived this man whose name was Job. Job 1.1 says, This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And it, he had a few bad days. His life hit the fan. He lost all that was precious to him and he even began to die. His friends came and didn't even recognize him. His wife told him to curse God and die. He doesn't. Job doesn't understand what's going on. He's not aware of the backstory. He doesn't read Job 1. He doesn't see that Satan has a role in all this. He has no clue. The story of Job tells us this. One, that Job was a faithful person to God. And he continued to trust God even when he did, never understood what was going on. He stayed faithful to God, kept questioning, asking, longing, chasing, speaking to God. And the second thing we find out from the story is that Job is a story of a God who didn't feel the need to explain what was going on to his faithful servant. 
God eventually brought good into Job's sorrow, but he never explained what happened. That's the long and the short of it. <laughs> it's a deeply disappointing and deeply hopeful story, the Job story, which is true of the story of history. Sometimes life sucks. Jesus' call in our gospel is for us to know that whenever disappointment comes, that not a hair on our head will perish. That God is still God, that he has our backs. We may not understand it, but if we stand firm, we win life. Jesus is asking us to remain faithful to God even when we don't get what's going on. And as a result, he claims we win on some level. So here are my questions I'm asking you from our text this morning. What are the things happening in your life right now that make you wonder if God is really with you? Jesus is asking you in the midst of your worst, the hairs on your head will not perish. Stand, life will come. What if that's true?